Hi, and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia, who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world changed by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website, www.northridge.org.au. Hello, everyone. It's nice to see you. Um, we're amongst friends tonight. Friends tonight. It's good to it's good to be here, and um, we're celebrating Jesus' resurrection, which is quite remarkable. You know, there have been a lot of people throughout history who have said and done extraordinary things, um, but only one rose from the dead and is still alive, and that's Jesus. So, what an incredible privilege to get to celebrate that tonight. Now. The way that I want to reflect on Jesus' resurrection tonight is actually to go through a passage that we probably wouldn't normally associate with Easter. Um, So you might come as a bit of a surprise, but I'll explain in a second. We're going to be going through the parable of the prodigal son. Now, um, this might be a parable you've heard a million times before, you've heard dozens of sermons on. Um, Maybe you're not super familiar with this story that Jesus told, but we're um, we're going to read through it in a second so everyone's up to speed. Um, But why look at this particular parable tonight. I want to give you two reasons. Um, The first reason is I think a lot of the time when we go through the parable of the prodigal son, we often focus on the first half of the the parable. It's this amazing, amazing story of God's redemption. And and then we get to the, the son coming home and the father receiving him and then we stop. And that's why we call it the parable of the prodigal son. But the story is a little bit longer than that. There's another half to it. Um, and I think when we actually take the whole thing in context, the story goes from just being a story of redemption to being a story of invitation to the new life that Jesus won for us when he rose from the grave. You know, I think the parable of the prodigal son is this beautiful invitation to share with Jesus in new life and in the celebration that he has in store for us. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is I've actually been sitting on this prophetic word for quite some time. Um, and as, I was, as we were coming up to Easter, I really feel like the Lord said, now's the time to share it. Uh, so I'm going to, and it links quite strongly to this parable. Um, I feel like um, we are entering a season as a community, as a church, maybe even as a vineyard movement. I don't know. But us, generally, we are moving into a season where God has a special grace for prodigals coming home. I believe we're moving into a season where there are, there are people who are in our spheres. There are people that we know um, who, who haven't been to church today, who haven't been to church for a long time, who have previously had a relationship with Jesus and walked away from their faith. And God, we are entering this season where God wants to bring those people back. And he's calling us to partner with him in bringing prodigals home. So tonight, as we're we're going through this story, I want us to lift um, in our hearts those people um, who God wants to bring home, the people that you know who've walked away from their faith previously. I feel like God wants to break our heart for those people, um, and God wants us to lift them up and to bring them back. So, sounds good. Sounds good. Let's do it. Amen to that. Um, So, if you have a Bible handy, why don't you open it up or switch it on to Luke chapter 15. 
And just while you're getting that open, let me give you the background to this story. So uh, we're, in this, we're in this setting where Jesus is he's sort of in the middle of his ministry. He's, um, he's got this crowd of people who've been following him, and he's addressing the whole crowd of Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then there's the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, the Pharisees often get a really bad rap in church and in sermons. And you know what? It's, it's fair enough. They get a pretty bad rap in the Gospels themselves. But I think it's really important for us to realize why that is um, and to realize that the Pharisees actually started with really good intentions. Um, when the Lord brought Israel back from exile in Babylon, the, the nation of Israel, they expected this glorious triumphant return where they'd be restored to their former glory um, and everything would be wonderful. But when they came back, they actually arrived and remained under oppression from various empires. And at the time of reading, they were under oppression from the Roman Empire. And they were asking, God, what is going on? Like, like what happened to the promise that you had for us on our return from exile? And so this group called the Pharisees rose up and they said, well, we've got centuries of prophets who all told us that the reason that everything is going badly is because of our disobedience. So we're going to be really really obedient. In fact, we're going to add extra laws onto the law so that there's no chance of us stuffing it up. And we are going to, and, and if we are obedient enough to God, then we are going to see him um, bring us out from under this oppression and everything will be wonderful. And so that's what the Pharisees, that's why they are the way they are. They're not just, they're not just rude people. They actually have a vision of something, but they got lost along the way. Now, on the other side um, of the room, you've got the sinners and the tax collectors. Now, the sinners are basically all the people who are disobedient to God in whatever way that might be. Um, Maybe it was just um, the way they were born. Maybe it's their social class. Maybe it's the way they were behaving. But if you can think think about the Pharisees in that light, then the sinners are the people who are bringing everything undone. And so you can understand why the Pharisees really don't like the sinners. And you can understand why the Pharisees, who are effectively the upper class in the society, looking down on the, on the sinners and the tax collectors, you can see why there might be some resentment going the other way. So Jesus is addressing all of both, both of these groups of people at the same time. And what happens is the Pharisees are, are upset because they, this Jesus fellow, who's ostensibly a prophet from God, um, is, is actually spending time with the sinners and the tax collectors who are, as, as far as they're aware, undoing God's plan. And so they're saying, Jesus, why are you hanging out with them? They're the problem. You should be hanging out with us. And so Jesus, in response to this complaint, he tells three stories. And we're just going to focus on the third one. So we're picking up from verse 11. And I suggest um, during the, the message this evening, you keep your Bible open. So just as we're talking through it, you can, you can see what we're referring to. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because because he has him safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's an epic story, isn't it? And what we notice when we read through this story, there's really two storylines, aren't there? There's this storyline of the younger son and this, this, this very famous tale of the son um, going off and then coming back. And then we've got this other storyline of the older brother, which is potentially a bit more confusing to unpack. So what I want to do tonight is I want to just I want to briefly run through each of those storylines and, and work out what God's trying to say. Now I realize that in tackling this parable, I'm actually taking on a pretty daunting task. Um, like I said earlier, um, you've, you, if you've been around church for a little while, you may have heard dozens of sermons on this topic. Um, if you're into theology at all, you'll realize that there are there are so many different layers of meaning to this text. There are so many ways that you can interpret it. Um, and I absolutely promise you tonight I'm not going to be able to cover all of it. Um, but what I do want to do is that I feel like from each of these two storylines, the younger son and the older son, that God wants to speak to us as a community. And he wants to speak to us about the invitation that he has into the new life that Jesus won for us. And as, as I'm reading, as, as I'm going through this talk tonight, I want to ask you to think about which of these two sons do you identify with? And you're allowed to choose both. That's a valid option too. Um, so I want to start with the younger son because he comes first. Now, if I were to tell you a story um, from modern times about a son who asked his wealthy father for a whole stack of money so that he could go traveling, um, it might be somewhat offensive, but it wouldn't necessarily be that controversial. I mean, you know, young people love traveling. Um, Rich parents are known to give handouts to their kids. So what's the big deal? I think it's really important to think about the cultural context of what's happening here. You see, the ancient Israelite society, um, they were people who were, number one, incredibly, incredibly family-based. And secondly, 
honor was their highest value. It was all about honor. And so when the youngest son comes to his father and says, I want my share of the inheritance, even though you're still alive, what he's effectively saying to his father is, I wish that you were dead. It's incredibly, incredibly offensive, and it's absolutely unheard of in their context. Think of the Pharisees um, and the teachers of the law listening to this passage. They would be upset by what they were hearing. But it, it goes even further. And something we often don't think about in this passage is that it's not just the father that's being offended here. It's also the older brother, because as the, as the eldest son, he was entitled to a greater share of the inheritance. He had a birthright in Jewish culture as the firstborn son to take on the majority of his father's estate. And so when this younger son comes and says, I want half, it's incredibly offensive to the older son as well. But probably the most scandalous thing that happens in this passage is not even necessarily the ask of the younger son, it's the response of the father. You see, in Jewish law, um, if you read in Deuteronomy 21, uh, there's actually an established principle for what happens here. Um, If there's a a rebellious or an unruly son, then the father, his duty under the law is to take the son to the town gate to tell everyone what the son has done and then for the son to be stoned to death. So actually in this situation, the father's right is to kill his son for what he's done. But he doesn't do that, does he? Now consider that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't shares that the father was giving up. He wasn't calling his stockbroker and just quickly releasing some assets. Um, in first century uh, culture, the, the wealth would have been tied up in property and, and most likely in livestock. And so for the father to fulfill this request, it wasn't just a case of opening the, opening the company assets and, and releasing, you know, doing an electronics fund transfer. It was actually um, going to the market and selling off his property, fi- uh, his cattle, um, finding a buyer for, for his property. Like the father was actually had to be pretty invested in this process. And so it's absolutely scandalous. And in some ways, it's even against Jewish law that the father was fulfilling this request. And you know what? Even further to that, the, the son, he wasn't just going traveling. He didn't want to just go to Europe for three months. He was literally abandoning his people. He was abandoning the Israelite nation who was so proud. And we see this because he goes off to a distant country and he ends up feeding pigs, which were considered unclean in Jewish culture. It's absolutely scandalous. But you know what's extraordinary? is when the son comes back, the way that he's welcomed back is incredibly surprising. Now, if I were in the father's situation and my son had just done this to me and then I found him back, you know what? Maybe, maybe I would have the heart to take him back. But there'd be conditions on it, wouldn't there? It'd be like, well, you, this is how much money you cost me and so here are the consequences of your actions. If my son came back, I'd put, conditional, um, I'd put conditions on it. But that's almost the opposite of what the father does in this story. First of all, the father sees the son a long way off. And so there's this sense that the father's been watching for his son. He hasn't given up hope. 
the next thing that happens is we, we hear that the father is actually running to the son. Now, I don't know if you've seen the kind of robes that a patriarch would have, would have worn um, in, in ancient Israel, but they're pretty hefty. And so to actually run, he would have had to tuck his, the front of his, his cloak into his belt, which would expose his legs. Um, and when you're a patriarch, you don't run. People run to you. You don't run to them. It was an incredibly, incredibly undignified act for the father to run to greet his son. But not only that, there are three things that the father gives to the son. First of all, he gives him a robe. Now, if you read through the Passion Translation of this, um, it, said, it, it kind of draws out this, this thing, theme that we find in the Aramaic text, which suggests that um, really the son probably was wearing pretty ragged clothes. You know, he'd been homeless. He'd had no money. And so we can imagine the kind of state that the son was coming home in. And so the father chooses to put a robe on him which restores his dignity. He gives him a ring. Now, in our society, if I'm wearing a ring on my, on my fourth finger on my left hand, that's a, a clear sign. There's sort of this understanding that that means I'm married. Now, rings carried a, a, a very um, important but very different meaning in the context of the day. You see, a ring was something that um, you wore. Um, it, it, it was called a signet ring. And it carried a particular emblem. And so if I'm making a business deal or if I'm um, depositing money in a bank, then I'll make an imprint of my signet ring um, to verify that it's me. It's kind of like a signature. And so when the father gives his son a ring, that's saying that he's restored back to the family, but the father's also trusting him with the authority of the family. The father is giving him his authority by giving him this ring. Um, and then finally, the sandals. It's really interesting when you read the different commentaries that talk about this passage, everyone has a slightly different version of what the sandals mean. Um, but for me, what I feel like Jesus is trying to tell us here is that when the son came home, um, when, do you, when do you put your shoes on? You put the shoes on when you want to go out. And you can imagine this son coming home. The father doesn't want to let him go. The father's going to try and keep him put for as long as possible, Right? But by giving him sandals, the father is giving him the right to come and go as he pleases. He's restoring his trust. He's entrusting his son, which is just incredible. And then finally, um, they, they kill the fattened calf. Now, unless you live on a farm, you probably don't know exactly what that means. Um, but I would liken it to pulling the grange off the top shelf. It's kind of getting the really, really nice bottle of wine that you've been saving and cracking it. You know, it was extremely, extremely expensive. Um, it was a really, really extravagant act. And it's ironic when you consider how much of the father's money this son had wasted. The fact that he would extravagantly welcome this son home is just extraordinary. But you know, it's, it, it's this beautiful, beautiful picture we have of God's grace for us. That no matter what state we're in, when we come home, he welcomes us with open arms. You know, God is so, so thankful when his kids come home. And he just absolutely loves it when we return to him. But I want to ask you a question. Because there's actually a really, really glaring problem with this story. And I'm not sure if you noticed it as I was reading through it. But I want to ask you honestly... Do you think this son was actually repentant? 
Do you think there was actually a real heart change that went on in this kid's heart when he decided to come home? Now, I can't tell you for certain, but I don't think there was. I think the reason that this, this, this son came to his senses is because he realized that he ran out of options and he had no other place to go. And you know what? I think deep, deep down inside, whether you've been a Christian for two minutes or for, for 30 or 40 years, I think we all really struggle to really believe that this is the way that the kingdom could operate. You know, I think deep down somewhere we think that we actually have to get it all sorted before we come home to Jesus. But that's just simply not the case. And it's scandalous. It's wrong. It shouldn't work that way. But that's our God. He welcomes us home no matter what state our heart is in. And it's incredible. You know, I was, was struggling to find an illustration for this. But you know what? I think there's a um, modern day example that really helps us to understand the gravity of what's happening here. Um, recently, I was having a conversation with someone and they described or they said to me that they believe that the new smoking is pornography. It's, a, um, it's this, this addiction that is absolutely ruining parts of our society. And you know what? The thing with pornography that's so dangerous is that there's this element of shame. And I think the enemy is having an absolute field day with this particular addiction by, by bringing in this lie, um, which is a fear of condemnation. Like if this gets out, like if God knew what I do behind closed doors, he'd be so ashamed of me. You know what? This passage blows that lie out of the water. It destroys that shame. I'm not promising you that if you bring that straight to the Father, it'll fix it straight away. But when you come back to the Father with whatever situation you're in, whatever sin issue you're dealing with, when you come back honestly to Father God, He doesn't put you to shame. He doesn't put you to shame. He greets you. He restores your dignity. He gives you His authority. He reminds you that He entrusts His kingdom message with you. And He pulls out the best wine out of the cellar. And He wants to celebrate with you because you've come home. I wonder if you identify with this, this, this younger son. My message for you tonight is come home. Whatever state you're in, come home. Whether you're sitting here tonight and you've never given your life to Jesus, don't wait till you've got it all sorted. Come home. Because when Jesus rose again, he established new life and you get to live in that new life. He doesn't leave you at the cross. He has a promise for you and it's so good. Just come home. Now I think often when we read this parable, we stop there. That's why we call it the parable of the prodigal son. And I love that um, what N.T. Wright says, he, he says it probably is better titled the, the, the parable of the running father because it's, it's this um, beautiful father that, that ties it all together. Um, and you know what? I think in some ways it makes sense because it's actually much easier to identify with the story of the younger son because the story ends well for him. And it's really easy to distance ourselves from the older because we think, well, the older son, that's the Pharisees and we're not the Pharisees. No, we're never like that. 
But let me, just, let me just help us understand this. Let's take it back a step. Why is the older son so upset in this moment? Now, I've already told you that the, the, the younger son's request, it wasn't just an offense to the father, it was an offense to the older son as well. But then if you look at what he says, what the older son says when the father comes to talk to him, he says two things. He says, first of all, I've been slaving for you, which is interesting. And secondly, he says, I have never disobeyed you. We get this like almost legalistic um, view. He has this like legalistic view towards what's going on here. And it's, it's easy to interpret this passage as... as as the, as the older son saying, you know, Dad, this is just unfair. This is unfair. And in some ways, when you read it like that, he actually has every right to be upset, doesn't he? I mean, think about the inequality that's going on there. Think about how hard this older son has worked for all of these years while his, youngest, his younger brother's been off partying. You know what the problem here is? that the inheritance of the oldest son has absolutely nothing to do with his work. It has nothing to do with what he can do for the father. And it has everything to do with the relationship that he has with the father. You know what? The, the, the behavior of the younger and the oldest son in some ways doesn't matter because their inheritance is based on their relationship. Their inheritance is based on their sonship. And I think... The evidence of that is that when you see the father's response, he doesn't, he doesn't try and smooth things out with the older brother. He calls him back into relationship. He says, I have always been with you and everything I have is yours. It's just about, it's just about relationship. And I wonder if you have ever found yourself in a relationship where things seem unfair. In a relationship where you feel incredibly justified in how you've behaved and what you've done, but someone else has really, really offended you. Now, forgiveness can be a really tricky topic, and we're actually going to do a, ser- a whole series in a few weeks' time looking at how we do forgiveness, about how we, we mend fences, um, about how we do reconciliation. So we're not going to have time to go there tonight. But what I do want to point out is that this story actually ends a little bit abruptly. And have you ever noticed that we don't actually find out what the older brother does? You know, I think that's a really, really intentional omission on Jesus' part. I think he was leaving it up to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to decide who they were going to be. Were they going to base, were they going to think about their inheritance in terms of what they could do? Which, remember, if you're a Pharisee, that was the whole foundation of your movement, was what you could do for God. Are you going to base your, um, your inheritance, your promise, what you can do for God, or are you going to base it on your relationship with Him? How's your story going to end? Now, I want to wrap up um, by bringing it, bringing it back to the reason why we're here tonight. On Friday, um, we had a beautiful service, and we remembered the cross. We remember the incredible price that Jesus paid to bring us home. And you know, when Jesus breathed his last breath, when he died and surrendered his spirit, 
At that moment, our sinful nature died with him. He took it all on the cross. And at the moment of Jesus' death, that legal debt that we owe to God is gone. It's finished. But you know what? I think so often we stop there. We stop at the cross. We think, well, our debt is paid. It's done. And that's all I need. But that's not the story that we've just read. That's the story if you stop halfway. But when you read the whole story of this prodigal son, or or maybe better named the story of the running father, you discover that in fact that wasn't the end. It doesn't finish at the cross. That three days later, Jesus rose again. And our sinful nature has been dealt with on the cross. But when Jesus rose again, he brought us into his new life. There is a celebration that is going on in heaven. There is a kingdom that is coming. There is a party that we are invited to. And if you identify with this this younger son, then the call to you tonight is come home. Come home. There's a party waiting for you. I don't care what state your heart is in. I don't care whether you're fully repented yet. It's important, but Jesus will deal with that um, with you on the way. He just wants you to come home. So come home tonight. Whether that's for the first time or the 2,000th time, come home. And if you identify with the older brother in this situation, um, I love there's this song we sing. Um, and when you think about it in, in terms of this passage, it makes so much more sense. It says, I'm giving up my dreams. I'm laying down my rights. I'm giving up my pride for the promise of new life. So if you identify with the older brother, then I want to invite you to lay down your dreams, lay down your rights, lay down your pride for the promise of new life. Come into the party because, man, it's good. So why don't we stand?